Hello and welcome to Polyhedron, your multifaceted podcast for everything RPG related. I am your host, Matthew, and unfortunately, I only have one co-host this week, Scott. Hey there. Hi. How are you? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm all right. I'm good. I'm doing better. I'm not sick anymore. That sucked. Good, good, good. Did you get your nose rotated again? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Negative yeah. both times, but that doesn't say too much. Did you get an antibody test? Not yet. You should get that done. You, got it. you should know. I should know. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I may or may not have had the COVID, but I'm much, much better now. So we will see. It, it's amazing how quickly things become adapted into the culture as like, just like wear your mask, you know, wearing mask, quarantine, like the, 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 the ins and outs of getting tested. That's actually a problem because then they becomes rote and then it becomes rote. People kind of get True. relaxed to it. Eh, I, I think that that's, that's definitely a possibility, but I think I'm more fascinated by the fact that of just how quickly like this stuff just suffuses the culture. Okay. And, absolutely. And becomes universal. In a well, way. Well, well, welcome to the human condition. We are programmed to be very social. And once, once a momentum, a, a critical mass of people do a thing, the rest start just falling in line because that's just the nature of, yeah, but something we are tells a species. Me Something tells me that that accelerated about, you know, 1998. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we actually started talking to each other on like a global civilizational level. Yeah. Yep. But regardless, hello, everyone. Welcome back. Scott, how has your gaming been? It's been good. Uh, I've been having fun. Uh, we started Blood Covenant, which is yes. the name of it, because you fuckers finally decided on a pack name. You're uh, welcome. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, no, Blood Covenant Sabat podcast. We started recording it, got the first session in the can. Uh, and I'm super excited because I think that that's going to be super special. Um, I really, it's, it's a delightful little group. It's a delightful little group, but here's the thing about that. I'm going to chop out most of the delight. Uh, yeah, I know. But uh, I will be making the raw files available for patrons. Yay. So become a patron of because you'll love the shit we're going to say. Yeah, you'll get you'll get you'll get the uh the wacky side of what's going on because I'm going to be I'm going to be chopping it up into a very tight audio drama. Yeah. As you, uh, you know, cutting out cutting out most if not all of the dice rolls, yeah. a lot of like all the chatter. It's it's all going to be p the pure role play. Yeah. Cuz I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, when, when someone says something serious, the rest of us are laughing our asses off because mm -hmm. we realize how dire what they just said is. Like, we're yeah, just, no, it's, we just it's can't, good. we just can't deal with it. Yeah, no, but I will, I'll, that, that's going to be a long time coming just because I have a lot of editing to do mm -hmm. and I don't want to spend a fortune. I'm, I'm going to have to subscribe to some like audio service to get like unlimited samples like audio blocks or something but yeah. i don't want to spend i don't want to do that for like more uh, than two months we'll talk off mic but i may be able to help you out there okay cool anything else for your gaming i know we've been doing our normal stuff yeah i've been i've been doing more pickup games recently um i'm playing in a in a stream game uh called uh city of angels death and diablery uh, which is every other thursday and put a link to the show notes on that i had the yep. first game couple weeks ago got the next game this week it's every other week uh it's very in an interesting experience obviously it's just people i don't know so yeah. it's taking a little bit of getting used to it mm -hmm. 
but it's cool. Yeah, it's fun. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, yep. uh, I'm in talks with another guy to do a more uh, interactive theater style vampire game. Okay. Uh, which that may or may not happen. He's actually casting it like a theater production. Yeah. Uh, so, so you had to do an audition. You had yeah, to I kind of had to do an audition. I need I need to finish up some writing for that. I need to write a short short story mm. uh, with the character that I made up. Uh, and probably sometime this weekend, I'm going to be playing in a one shot uh, that is a vampire comedy game. Oh, okay. It's Kindred Cruises. It's vampires on a cruise ship. Oh, that can't go poorly at all. Oh yeah, no, it's gonna be wacky fun time, you know. <laughs> oh, that that Caribbean sun, that always. Uh, well, you know, the water's warm. <laughs> <laughs> but that's been fun. D and D's been going well, both your game and and the D and Acquisitions Incorporated. Yep. Um, I'm sure. I'm looking forward to this. Tomorrow is when we play D and D. Ack Inc. Yep. And that's been super cool. Yep. And I'm looking forward to that because this is completely off script. This is like one of those sections of the of the adventure where it's like, eh, come up with something. Nah, why not? Yeah, just come up with something. Here's yep. some suggestions. Go. As far as pickup games and stuff like that, I, I'm I'm actually trying to get into a D and D game because I really want to do one of the new warlock patrons that they just came out with with the Unearthed mm. Arcana called the Undead. It's basically lets you play a Death Knight. I want to play a Death Knight, but Sans douchebaggery. Well, I mean, I just kickstarted an adventure that I actually might want to run just because it sounds like such a cool concept, but that's going to take a bit. It's yeah, it's going to take a bit. Is that the one you told me where it's like, you can't tell me anything about it? Yeah, exactly. I can't tell you anything about it, although your your concept would probably fit well into it. Okay, that's um, good. But yeah, it, it's it, what you can tell your players is it's a dungeon crawl. You start at level one. Have fun. Shrug. Shrug emoji. Yeah, exactly. Shrug emoji. But that could be uh, really cool because I, I like the concept of I don't know what I'm getting into because mm-hmm. that to me is a part of the challenge and fun of a game is going, oh, I have to think on my feet and I have to become creative, which I like. So I'm trying to get in some D&D games just because I have free time on the weekends and I'm still isolated. So I'm doing that. I don't want to. Yeah. You going back to work yet? Or oh yeah, yeah. I've been back to work. Um, this is my first full week. Gotcha. Um, yeah, fine. Uh, the other lady that was out is coming back this week too, so things are getting back to normal. Good, good. Uh, or as normal as they can be. Wrestling mm-hmm. gaming has been going well. I enjoy uh, Ack Inc. and I am super looking forward to starting to wrap up, hit the later part of uh, Descent into Avernus because this mm-hmm. is when. You guys are super high level or a much higher level and you can, you have. Oh yeah. We're going to go romper stomper on some bitches. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be kind of interesting. I'm interested to see what you guys do. But other than that, that's been our gaming. Obviously Ryan's probably been doing his normal gaming. He was just busy with work and just couldn't mm-hmm. make it tonight. So we're going to go right into the news. The news. There's not super much, but there is some cool things. There are some cool things. So this is a little, little old, but not super old. Um, so, fandom the people who own D&D beyond mm-hmm. are producing two games two licensed games one is dragon prince as in the netflix show oh, okay. uh, and this is the bigger one legends of called legends of gray skull it is the masters of the universe role-playing game Shit. and it's going to use the cortex prime system which i actually don't know anything about i need to look it up and kind of look into it so get the, those are going to be on the horizon so cool. I, yeah, there. So you get to if you wanted to play a role playing game in the Masters of the Universe setting, there you go. 
some other news. Uh, this one's a little older too, and I probably should have said it last episode, but better late than never. Uh, Hellboy is getting a role playing game. Ooh. So it's it's the Mike Mignola art and all that stuff. However, what's interesting and a little controversial, they're using D and D five E. Yeah, it's I wouldn't do that. It's yeah, there's a lot of like, huh, because it is an open gaming license. Anyone mm-hmm. is allowed to use that system, the core system, but it's does that fit into it doesn't. It really doesn't. Don't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't have a good mouthfeel when mm-hmm. you first like think about it. I think it needs something else. It needs it needs something a little more gritty and uh, uh, sort of um, flexible as far as that goes. Because D and D is extremely heroic and lends itself to high fantasy. And while there's fantastical things in Hellboy, they're much more street level and much more Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean. Hell, I would I would see like a Trinity Continuum or like Scion. Yeah, I could. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I can. That's I very can get cinematic and. Mm, actually, or like uh, they came uh, beneath the sea, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, or they came from beyond the grave. Yeah, came beyond the grave. That'd be a pretty good. Which one. that's very interesting. I I I put my five dollars on that Kickstarter just because I want to get. I just want to get the goods. Yeah. Oh, by the way, there's uh, right now, this week is the end of They Came From Beyond the Grave, and they are lining up uh, Demigod for yeah, September. I saw everyone. that. I saw that. They're lining up Demigod. So Demigod's going to be next. I'm hoping by the end of the year, they will do Mask of Mythos. I I'm hope hoping so too. by the end of the year, they have Mask of Mythos because, oh my God, do I want to read that so badly. Yeah, I I, I kind of want to pick up Carlin Unbound just to read it because I've heard it's such good things about it. Yes, yes. Uh, which Chris Bybee, it's the guy who did Master Mythos as well. Yep, yep. Uh, he, um, he, that, that's his pride and joy is Harlem Unbound. It's basically puts, if you, you know, a lot like uh, Lovecraft Country, which is an HBO thing now. You need to watch that, by the way. Yeah, Holy I do. Holy shit. I need to watch it. I'm going to watch it tonight. But go look at Harlem Unbound. I'll put a link in the show notes because it puts a lot of the idea of the ideas of race, of uh, minorities in sort of the, but add the mythos to that and in like the roaring 20s and 30s. Um, so that adds a lot of depth and a different perspective on it. Uh, the other, another news, and this is pretty, pretty fairly recent, uh, MCDM Studios, the people, Matt Koval's uh, studio, the people who did Strongholds of Followers, are starting up a D&D magazine called Arcadia. It's going to be, I think it's just going to be online only, but I think they may do some physical copies. Um, um, in part of the interview that you're about to listen to, uh, magazines in the history of D&D are very important. They, they played like a linchpin of getting people from fans to become creators. That used to be sort of an avenue. And so mm-hmm. something like Arcadia uh, is going to be very interesting because that means they're going to take submissions from people and you're going to start cultivating followings and people who enjoy their content through arcadia so i'll put a link in the show notes so everyone's aware of that indeed yep speaking um, of which we just did a great interview yes we did we we have done a really good interview and i think you audience dear audience will enjoy the hell out of it so with no further ado here's the interview hello everyone 
I am very happy to bring a very interesting fellow to this podcast. Uh, his name is Owen K.C. Stevens. He's been in the industry for quite some time. Uh, he's currently the Fantasy Age Green Ronin. Uh, he's the developer for that game. Uh, and he's also the owner and publisher of Rogue Genius Games. Owen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. No problem. How do you like your life in the little black box of Zoom? <laughs> well, I finally got to use this post-apocalyptic uh, art for a background. This is from uh, Thundar the Barbarian. So. Uh, I thought <laughs> I recognized that. What was the creature's name? Mock? The, the, the Wookiee-like? Ookla the Mock. Yeah, yeah, it was right. Yeah. And they never said it on the show, but his name was Ookla because they picked him up right outside a giant sign that said UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's that's from the writer's Bible. Uh, also, every time I see the sun sword in D and D, that's all I can think of is his. Yep. Yeah, that's all. That's all. That's where that comes from. Lords of light. Yeah. No, I was a big yeah. fan. Of that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate that. Uh, we also have gotten a lot of good use out of Zoom and the virtual backgrounds. We use some uh, very demonic-looking backgrounds for our descent into Avernus game. It's a whole lot of fun. Sure. Just to mess around with. Um, but we have brought Owen onto the show because he has been in the gaming industry for quite some time. He's got a lot of experience from all different sort of facets of how a game is written, developed, and then published, and all the things that go along with it. So we're going to be talking a lot about a lot of things concerning the gaming industry. So just be prepared. But let's get started, Owen, with you, the boilerplate stuff of... How'd you get into gaming? What are the games you enjoy? And why do you like gaming? Um, so let me start with why I like gaming. Uh, in the 1980s, like 1982, uh, my parents went to Europe and decided not to take their kids with them. And at the time, I was very vexed by this. And as an adult, I get it. Uh, so <laughs> they left us uh, with my aunt and uncle, uh, Uncle Lucian, and he was a big geek. My mom's a big geek. My father was a big geek. We're a, we're a geeky family. Mm -hmm. So uh, he had a game room and it had things like uh, an Apple IIc with a flight simulator on it. Um, but he also had a copy of the first edition uh, AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Mm -hmm. That's all he had was the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what's this? This is fascinating. And I was a fan of, of fantasy fiction, right? When I was in kindergarten, my mother read us The Hobbit. Uh, by the time I was in third, fourth grade, I was reading Lord of the Rings. I was in high school before I could get through the Cimmerillion. Um, so I was absorbing all the, the pulp uh, and fantasy and sci-fi fiction I possibly could, going all the way back to, you know, Asimov and E.E. E. Smith and, and Heinlein, uh, and then as, as modern as was possible at the time. And this book claimed that I could make those stories. I didn't have to wait for someone else to make those stories. I could make them as part of a game. Mm-hmm. And my uncle said, well, if you can figure out how to play that game, uh, we'll, we'll play it. I picked it up. It looked interesting. I can't figure out how to play it. Couldn't figure out how to play it. Could not have a player's handbook. <laughs> so I went through, and there were, like, lists of stats for monsters. And using those, I figured out what information we needed for players, even though we didn't have it. And I made up everything we needed. I, I made up stats for characters and weapons. And I'm sure it was all terrible, but it was technically you know, we had armor classes and attack values. And uh, so I was literally doing game design before I role-played. I, I had to design a role-playing game, a terrible half of a role-playing game before I was ever a role-player. And I was hooked. I was completely hooked. Uh, and then through high school um, and, and before high school, 
that was my that was my those were my gang colors. That was my flag. I could yeah. fly my yeah. geek flag. People at school would see that I had a D and D book or a Starfleet Battles book or uh, there were the little uh, battle game books that you'd you'd open and and they would have pictures and tell you where to go. BattleTech and uh, Fighting Fantasy. Um, and so I did not. I literally had no friends when I when I went into like the sixth grade uh, because there were no kids that lived near me. At, at my house. Um, right. And I, I was not good at making friends, but having these games meant that other people interested in these things would go, Oh, do you play Gamma world? And I'd be like, I love Gamma world. I would not say I played Gamma world. because I, I didn't much at the time. And that would be how I would make connections and make friends. And the vast majority of people I know, I mean, I met my wife through gaming. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, my career has become gaming. So I was hooked on gaming Move forward to the 1990s. Uh, it was an economically difficult time, and I really wanted enough money to get a Dragon Magazine subscription. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. And my wife said, well, you write all these notes for your campaigns. They're fascinating. They're fun. All your friends love hearing about the lore. Why don't you write an article for Dragon? And if you can sell one or two articles a year, that'll be enough to buy a subscription. So the original goal was just to make enough money that I could afford a subscription to Dragon Magazine. That was it. So that my hobby would be finance neutral. It would right, pay exactly. for itself. It, it, it doesn't take anything away, so I get all the enjoyment out of it. Yep. Uh, maybe, maybe I can afford a few miniatures, right? Not like yeah. Warhammer miniatures, but just, no. just a few. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sundar so, and the Barbarian I, running around on your table. That's what you exactly. got. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we would play with pennies and, and stuff that I got from birthdays and dice. You know, there are six orcs numbered one through six. Here they are. They're all remarkably cubicle. Yeah. Uh, and I sold uh, some articles, and I really liked the feel. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I thought I would be a fiction writer, but I really liked the feeling of writing something and selling it and getting it out there and getting money for it. So I started doing that more and more and more. Uh, and then in 97, there was a TSR Writers Workshop that was the Coast put on out in Seattle, and I went out to that, uh, and it became my full-time freelance gig. Uh, in 2000, was the Coast was hiring they were hiring up because they were going to have the 3.0 d20 push and they right. decided they were going to do all the work in-house no more freelancers no freelancing for any of the books it will all be done in-house so i put in my application and on the strength of the work i'd done on dragon magazine i got hired mm-hmm. uh, i was out there for exactly 14 months and then i got laid off because they decided nope we're going to use freelancers we're going to use freelancers. <laughs> oh, this. Oh, this is so too sorry. expensive um and it was it was i mean 3.0 was hugely ex- successful but it just could not make the kind of money Magic Gathering did. So 3A was no. a huge success, hit all of its budgetary goals, did everything they wanted it to do, and then they laid off a third of the staff. Uh, I got hired to work on the Star Wars role-playing game, uh, so I did a lot of that. That was uh, the, the Saga edition, is that correct? No, well, not at first. Uh, okay. Saga is the last of the D20 Star Wars games. Mm-hmm. I was hired for the first of the D20 Star Wars games, ah. the Star Wars D20 role-playing game. Uh, the one that's uh, right that's what I worked on in-house... Uh, I wrote uh, the first Starships of the Galaxy book by myself, for example, on Company Time. Uh, I worked on the Rebellion Era Source book. Uh, Tempest Feud with uh, Jeff Grubb, which has the distinction of being the only Star Wars role-playing game adventure ever to be turned into a novel. There's an actual Star Wars novel called Scourge, which is based, which was written by Jeff based on that role-playing game adventure. So oh, cool. he mentions me and a couple other people that helped him with that on the forward. It's very nice. Uh, and then since Seattle is incredibly expensive and I didn't have a job anymore, my wife and I moved back home, uh, and I freelanced, I pretty much full-time freelanced from 
2000 to 2014. Uh, that included a lot of work on Dragon Magazine while Paizo was publishing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also did a lot of D20 work for Green Ronin. Uh, I started working for a small company called Super Genius Games. Uh, I did a D20 Weekly, which was a weekly online magazine that Steve Jackson Games did for D20, uh, including once having written all but one article of one week of D20 Weekly. Uh, so the editor even had me write the editorial since I'd done everything else. Uh, wow. And that just became my, my full-time gig. Uh, in 2014, Paizo was hiring up. Um, so I applied for a job there and because I'd done a lot of freelance work with them and I'd done a lot of the magazine work and I'd done some stuff for, uh, uh, Absalom and Pathfinder and all the things, uh, I got hired and I was there from 2014 to 2019, uh, when I left for a series of other job opportunities, which turned out not to pan out and I'm back to full-time freelancing, uh, super genius games, uh, eventually, uh, the owners of that and I decided that we had different visions of where we wanted to go on things. So they, I had worked my way up to owning part of super genius. They bought me out and they bought me out with the value of the products I had written for the company. So that then got spun into rogue genius games, which is a company I uh, and my wife and our friend Stan own, and I'm the publisher for, uh, and we have partners, uh, everybody games with Alex Agunas, uh, does a ton of stuff for Starfinder and Pathfinder. And uh, and I worked on the Starfinder role-playing game while I was at Paizo. Uh, I do a lot of stuff with the freelance now because I had done a lot of work, uh, with Green Renin in the D20 days, they hired me back when they were doing their Pathfinder version of Freeport, which is their seminal book. Uh, I then stopped working with them for a while, and then they hired me back last year to work on the Fantasy Age book. And, mm, and that's basically, I, that's how I accidentally slid into my hobby. My, my love of my hobby became the, the way I handled everything, which became my career. Right. Everything sort of just morphed around sort of submitting these articles and everyone's like, this guy is good and he's consistent. Let's get him. <laughs> or they just said he's not as terrible as everything else we're getting. So, you know what? Uh, <laughs> take it. Take it. That's fine. You're doing good. Moving right along. So, no, that so if if that isn't your credentials for being able to speak with some authority about the industry itself i don't know what is before we get into that though um i I have a question if you had to put one on it one finger on it what's your favorite game starfinder now if you ask me on a different day you might get a different answer Mm -hmm. um but today we're getting starfinder cool uh i i helped create starfinder um i was very excited about the possibility. You know, I had worked on Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, and I helped co-write uh, the Saga Star Wars edition, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Rodney Thompson and I uh, were the co-writers for that, uh, and some on-house people, and the, the editor, uh, Gary, had really helped with it as well. But the authors are officially me and, and Chris Perkins and, and Rodney. So the idea of bringing in that magic uh, and that, that fantasy, especially space fantasy elements into a D20 game, I found very exciting. And while, you know, I, I do not want to oversell my part of it. I was part of a team. Uh, everyone in the design team helped work on it, uh, especially uh, Mark Seifner and Logan Bonner uh, did a lot of work after the rest of the team had gone on. And while we weren't telling anyone this at the time, we're working on Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Mm. Uh, there was uh, Amanda Hammond and uh, James Sutter and Rob McCreary uh, and I were all part of that sort of initial team and it moved out from there but there were a lot of things that i got to do that were how i like these games to come together uh so thankfully as a result 
I like how that game came together. I, I either wrote or uh, developed all of the classes up through the character operation manual. Um, most of them I developed. I only wrote one. I wrote the Solarian, but I developed all of them at one point or another. So what would you say would be like the, the standout facet of Starfinder that really makes it special and, and your favorite? I, I actually want to sort of wrap this up into what is Starfinder, because I actually don't know much about Starfinder. So, so uh, th- there are two answers to what is Starfinder. Um, they're sort of the, the elevator pitch. Starfinder is a science fantasy game where high fantasy and science fiction are both in full force. Mm-hmm. So it takes the world of Galarian, which is the, the Pathfinder fantasy setting, and it moves it an unknown number of centuries into the future. Uh, so you still have magic and the gods and dwarves and elves, but you also have blaster pistols and new races. Uh, there are bug people, the Sharon, and, and a, an alien uh, militant race of lizard folk, the Vesk, uh, and all sorts of new threats as you're traveling through space. And all those things blend together. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It's, it's a D20 game. That's sort of the other answer. There's this, this evolution, if you will, that goes from 3.0 D&D to 3.5 D&D. And then 4th edition D&D really sprouts off in a different direction. So from 3.5, you go to Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from Pathfinder, Starfinder. It is all part of one smooth evolution. And there are a lot of other things branching out. I mean, 5th edition is clearly a branch off of, of some of the D20 philosophy yep. uh, that goes a different direction. And that's not to say that it's better. But obviously, if you get four game designers in a room and ask them how you should do something, you'll get six answers. And a lot of my <laughs> answers are in Starfinder. Cool, um, cool. I really like having all the, the toys to play with. So right. if what you want to do is play a spellcasting elf who just happens to have a, a laser sword instead of a sword sword, that's a choice. You can totally do that. But the game also allows you to play a human soldier who doesn't even like magic, who has no magic on him, but is just as effective and competent and able to engage in the game because you can have powered armor and a, a rotating Gatling laser and jump jet boots and, and grenade launchers. So all of those things are in this game. It also, in my experience, is a little easier for people to get into as a new thing because they can say, hey, can I play someone who's uh, on a reality show? That wouldn't work for a fantasy medieval setting. Right. But everything that we have in our world, right? I'm, I'm a, a copywriter. I, I'm a lawyer. I, I take out the trash. Those are all backgrounds that can be appropriate for Starfinder. And then they can introduce things like, oh, I, I see that there is magic. I don't want to cast magic, but can I like just get a magic healing serum? Yeah, we have that. We totally have that. Yeah, it, it's blending the uh, some of the, the aesthetics and the ideas of science fiction. Like, oh, this technology is so advanced, it essentially runs on magic. Well, it act, you know, we're saying it does run on magic. It's just there how there it is works. actual magic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We and uh, Scott are in a Star Wars game for Polyhedron right now, and we like to do the yeah, it's space beer. It's not beer. It's space beer because we always have it's or star beer. It's always got to yeah. be flavored with the thing we're doing because star wars is also sort of a fantasy in space it, it absolutely is i mean it's it's also sort of a, a samurai western in space which is yeah, yes. very much where it's nope. its origins are are brought up from but i mean like i was just watching uh the terrible 1960s movie uh starman versus or space invasion i think which rift Drex did and at yep. one point they mentioned that there is this star that is deadly 
a Death Star. And so they're mentioning <laughs> oh, the Death no. Star all the time yeah. in this 1960s movie. So there are there are these very traditional pulp elements that made it into Star Wars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Now, that's really cool. As you said, there's a natural evolution between these iterations of games. Like you had 3.5, and then Pathfinder, we made the joke that it was like 3.75 because it was yep. between fourth. And then, obviously, if you, we always said that Pathfinder was the game's like, do you like all the little nib, like, like knobs that you can turn for your character? Well, go play Pathfinder. If you want something a little more sort of straight and narrow and you play something right out of the box, D&D 4th or even 5th, and especially 5th edition, is kind of where you should go. And uh, we did a, a beginner box for Starfinder, which yeah. uh, I have been told people have had very successful introducing the concept of role-playing to people experience. Uh, and the nice thing about that box is that it's got an adventure and a solo adventure and a map and dice and figures literally except for a pencil everything you need is in this box it has little uh, quick rule sheets for players which mm -hmm. is an idea that joe cassini had from having played so many board games so that if you're not used to playing this you can say hey what actions do i have oh i can do these things these are the rules right these are the conditions so what i was going to say is i've noticed because of the evolution of board gaming a lot of that sort of technology and methodology has come into role-playing. So I see almost everyone who's like, oh, we have a new game. Here's a starter set. If yeah. you want the base book, that's fine. Buy the base book. We want you to buy that. But if you just need to understand the bare bones of this game, get the starter box, go play it with your friends, figure it out. Because this, this, if we do our job right, you'll be able to figure it out in no time. You'll have all the cheat sheets you need. And then eventually you'll come back and just buy the base book from us. Although if you just buy the beginner set, we're happy. You have bought a game product. It's yeah, yeah. You've bought something. Yep. You've, you've, you, we've, we've hooked you on some level. You'll more likely to pick up either more of this stuff or another person's beginner game. And so you're just perpetuating the hobby. So yeah, that's really cool. I like the idea of Starfinder. I may have to look at the beginner's box and sort of dig into it. Also, um, very quickly, give us the pitch on this fantasy age that you're doing with Green Ronin. So Fantasy Age uh, is a role-playing game that was largely designed by Chris Premis. Uh, he designed the original engine, the Adventure Gaming Engine, or Age Engine, when they were doing uh, the Dragon Age tabletop role-playing game, so adapted mm -hmm. from the video game. Um, and that engine was designed to be very simple, very fast, and get quickly to the, the adventure, to the play, because with Dragon Age, you expect that you're going to have a whole lot of people come in uh, who just want to play in that world, right? That's what excites mm -hmm. them. They, they mm -hmm. want to. Mm -hmm. They want. They want to just hit the ground running. Right. The system itself was extremely popular. Uh, so Will Wheaton decided to do a season of a show about role playing, um, where they role played the game Titan's Grave, and Titan's Grave is a setting. And they came to Green Ronin and said, "Can you take the age system out of Dragon Age and turn it into its own role playing game?" So that's where that came from. It, it is in many ways uh, an effort to get the, a different balance that some people will find perfect between rules and crunchiness. Mm -hmm. So you've got three classes. Uh, you've got rogues and mages and warriors. And then there are different specializations that if you're going to be an archer or a, a thief or an assassin or a paladin or a, a necromancer, those are things you can pick up as you go. For me, the thing that makes the, the age system so exciting is the stunt die system. So instead of 20-sided die, anytime you're trying anything, you roll three six-sided dice, you add them together, and you add your bonus, and you're shooting for target number. So it's, it's yeah. pretty basic in that regard. If any two of those dice are doubles, 
then you earn stunt points. And stunt points allow you to do special cinematic things that you can only do when you have stunt points. Right. So, for example, uh, if you have uh, a character who is is got a, a great big melee weapon with stunt points, you might be able to throw that melee weapon to impale someone who's out of range. Hmm. Um, and the more stunt points you have, the more cinematic thing you can do. One of the problems that a lot of role-playing games have is that you want to be able to do those really spectacular, exciting, only happen occasionally things um, like disarming people or grappling Mm. them or knocking them to the ground or throwing sand in their eyes. A lot of games handle that by saying, well, this is very effective and very difficult. So if you try it, your chance of success goes way down. Mm. The problem with that is that if you try that as a player, you will fail a lot before you succeed. And that's not any fun. But if you make it extremely effective and just as easy as stabbing someone, then people do only that all the time. Correct. And then the game is nothing but people throwing chandeliers at each other. <laughs> um, and, and if the game is tune, that's fine. But if you want it to feel, a lot of people want their games to feel like, like novelizations and, and cinema, the stuff they see, yeah. the stuff they read. So you want a whole bunch of fighting and stabbing and jumping about, and then the occasional nifty thing. The stunt system means that that occasional nifty thing comes up, but it comes up when the dice save situation are right. So I can't trip someone all the time, but when the stunt system comes up, I can say, okay, these stunt dice are telling me there's a situation here. Maybe I've noticed that he's backed up to a step that he hasn't noticed. Now I can push him down and trip him, and I I will have this really good chance of success because I'm using all these stunt points. And since you can have between one and six stunt points from any given stunt event, uh, we can have this range of things you can do. Mm-hmm. It also means we can do things like, uh, I mentioned a chandelier. You can have stunts in a location. Uh, we've got a book called Layers, which has a lot of layer stunts. We're like, okay, this dragon lives in this cave. The dragon knows this cave really well. He normally has this cone of breath weapon, but he can hit the ceiling and flood the whole cave with fire. He can only do it here, but that's a locational stunt. Or we could do a right. location stunt that says, you're on a sailing ship. If you get a stunt die, you can jump on the sail and slide down it, slitting it open with your dagger and land on the deck. We don't want you doing that all the time, but we can put that in that location. And it gives you that exciting, kind of like a critical hit, but without always being the same critical hit level. And we have it for combat and for social situations. So, you know, you can discover someone else's mother's name is Martha and suddenly you're the yeah, best yeah. friend. Uh, and we have it for exploration. So there are these different areas where you can have these situations do this neat and exciting thing without it happening all the time and without the GM constantly having to have people say, can I trip him now? Can I trip him now? Can I trip him now? Uh, I I like it. And it reminds me a little bit of, I've been playing a lot. I just finished Final Fantasy VII Remake. Uh Reminds me of more of like the limit break system. It's like, okay, you're charging up to get into a good position, good narrative position. And then the layer actions, the the sort of the layer stunts remind me a lot of, um, I think hanging aspects from fate. It's like the idea mm-hmm. that, oh, because we're in this environment, this thing is hanging that anyone can call upon to use. Right. Um, anyone can add invoke it in order to do something. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, that sounds very intriguing. I'm definitely gonna look into Fantasy Edge. That that's really cool. Buy our uh, books. <laughs> yes, shill, shill like the wind. Uh, but um, with those out of the way, let's get into the actual meat. 
of what we want to talk about. We want to pick your brain about the experiences you've had. Um, what intrigued me to you, what like got me to follow you on Twitter and got me to start to really read what you've been writing is this entire hashtag that you sort of started, which is called hashtag real uh, gaming industry, if I'm remembering correctly. Real game industry. Yeah, real game industry. And it was all just not not specifics, but you were kind of revealing, you were pulling the curtain back a little bit of, these are the conditions that freelancers, writers, and publishers have to deal with. These, we're in a very tumultuous time right now, especially in, uh, in the United States. We live in the United States. We can't help it. And so a lot of things are coming to light. A lot of things um, have to be addressed. And you were doing in your own little way, trying to address them and get them more exposure. So what spurred this on? What really got your in your headspace to really start doing this? Because you started doing it on the regular, like, and you kind of still do it. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I had a whole, obviously when I started, I, I had 23 years of stuff that has been bothering me that I wanted to get out. And now having gotten a lot of that out, they are less common, but still when something comes up or I think of it, or there's a, a, a specific way to put it, uh, I will still put one out. So I have a blog, ONKCStevens.com, um, and it's supported by Patreon. And one of the things that I do on that blog is talk about uh, writing 101 in the freelancer life. So these are, these are the things I have learned going through uh, the being a freelancer and being a developer and an editor and a producer for role-playing game companies um, and owning part of my own and, and publishing for it. Um, and I just kept being surprised by the things that surprised people. Hmm. Um, I had a number of people, uh, for example, say, oh, I really want to get into writing. I really want to get into writing. I really get, want to get into writing. Holy hell, people are ripping me off. They only want to pay me 10 cents a word. And I'm like, no, no, no. 10 cents a word is good in the role-playing game industry. Mm -hmm. That's, that is not necessarily the top, but it is way up near the top. It is way above the average. And there are companies, there are still companies whose names people will recognize that offer, I mean, I recently heard three and a half cents a word for a, yep. a major company. Uh, there certainly used to be companies that I dealt with who would offer me half a cent a word, uh, one cent a word. Um, and that's, that's that economic reality, right? That is yep. the amount of money that is available and someone will write for that amount of money. That doesn't mean that the writing is good. That doesn't mean that there might not be ways to get people more money, but that is what the industry is. So as I started to, uh, when I left Paizo in 2019 uh, and then ended up being a full-time freelancer again, I had really begun getting back into what that freelance life was like. Having been at Paizo for five years, five years where a lot of things changed. Like there was no Discord five years ago. Yeah. Um, people weren't doing anything on Slack or Zoom five years ago. Uh, Five years ago, there were still a few gaming magazines like Kobold Quarterly still existed five years ago. So as I was at Paizo, I had begun to feel like I'm getting a little more and a little more and a little more out of touch with what it's like to be a freelancer because I'm doing all this full-time stuff. And while, yes, I'm freelancing, it is almost always someone saying, hey, Owen, I, this person who's known you for a decade, want you to do this specific thing for this specific project. And that is not the normal freelancing procedure. Also, you're um, getting a steady paycheck, like that you're part right, of the company yes. and you're sort of getting comfortable in that, that normal nine to five, quote unquote, nine to five lifestyle. Although also, uh, it, it, it's not a normal five, nine to five. No, lifestyle. no, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, which is another aspect of what I want to talk about because I was only on staff at Wizards of the Coast for 14 months. 
Mm. Um, I was been on staff at Paizo for five years. And during that time, I was talking to people who were on staff at Wizards of the Coast for years and years, on staff at Privateer Press for years and years. On uh, Green Ronin brought me on staff, and I was talking to them and the things that they'd work for. There are people there that, that work for White Wolf or, or work for uh, Obsidian. So uh, living in Seattle for five years, not only was I getting real-world practical in-house experience, but a lot of my friends that I used to only see at Gen Con, I could now go to a, a geek-themed bar and hang out with them for hours, and it gave me a much broader sense of what they were going through. And that began to give me a feel for what is if not universal, extremely widespread within the industry. Mm -hmm. So I just started thinking one night um, that I, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Okay, frequently I'm saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's, it's preventable. But there are things I think people should know about how the industry works, especially people that want to get into it. Um, mm -hmm. Some of that has been practical uh, advice that I've done in my blog, right? Like I've got a, a blog about paginations and headers. Uh, that is not exciting stuff, but those are things that I did not learn how the game industry uses that information when I was in, in, in school, any of my schools. I, it's stuff that I saw freelancers having no idea how to do anything with. I got taught that by people in the industry, so that was information I wanted to get out there. Um, the fact that it's harder to write uh, 200 sentences of flavor text for 200 uh, trading cards than it is to write the same number of words as a description of a, an elven city. That's something I didn't know coming into this. It's the same <laughs> word count. And the first 50 of those, you're just going to whiz through. But then you start to get to a point where you're like, oh, I, I have totally run out of ideas. I, yeah, I'm only having to do one sentence each, but these are all beginning to sound together. Yep. And so I learned to talk about things like uh, late work hours and, and that uh, people in this industry – generally speaking, don't get into this industry through a, a professional program, right? There mm -hmm. are now a few college courses designed to teach you how to get into gaming, but those are mostly aimed at video games. Yeah. So uh, if you are an executive in this industry, generally speaking, either you learn how to the job that you are doing at a non-gaming company and you don't know the gaming end of things, or you were in gaming so much that you got into a gaming company and there you were more competent than the other people around you at this non-gaming job, right? If you've got 50 people on staff, you need someone to be in charge of HR. You need someone to be in charge of setting salaries. You need someone to be in charge of uh, schedules and shipping and, and yep. print buying. The, the, um, the raw logistics of owning a company. And you've got to have managers. And most managers in gaming aren't people who went through some sort of management program. They're people who were so good at doing something that has nothing to do with managers that they got elevated to a management position. Um, and I understand how that happens. I've watched it happen. I might even do the same thing occasionally. That means those people frequently don't have the tools and the, the educational background to know how to manage. And they don't have the spare time to go learn it. And the company doesn't have the spare money to go pay for them to learn. So yep. everyone is making up a whole lot of it as we go along. And that causes problems that I'm not saying they can't be solved, but I've seen them be persistent over a lot of years, over a lot of product lines, over a lot of different companies. And the same kinds of issues come up again and again and again. Yeah, I, I can totally understand. Um, it blew my mind. Um, so you, you obviously know Matt Koval. You're, you're, you've heard of him. 
Um, yeah. He, he did fantastic on his strongholds and followers Kickstarter. He started his own company. He put out like, hey, I need people for, I'm adding people to our company to write for uh, some stuff that I'm doing. I'm going to pay 25 cents a word. And I was like, what? I, I yeah. Because I've been trying to get in myself and I've been looking and I've been talking to people in the industry. And I was like, 25 cents a word. Everyone and their mother's son was like chomping at the bit to try to get to that. Because that was, that's a gold mine as far as like the amount of money getting paid for mm -hmm. your work. And obviously it'd be very demanding work, but it'd probably be very good work because you're, you're a lot of people are coming in and they're willing to work really hard to get that kind of money. Part, part of what happens in the industry uh, is that the faster it, when you're freelancing um, mm. and to a certain extent, even when you're on staff, the faster you write, the more money you can make, mm. um, which means that, uh, there are people who are going to be in the industry, not because they can create the best material, but because they can create the most mediocre material. Mm -hmm. um, and when people complain about, for example, hey, couldn't this book have had one more editing pass? Of course, technically, any book could have had one more editing pass. The question is, how much more are you as a consumer willing to spend to pay for that one more editing pass? Right. Um, Similarly, I remember people on many different like Kickstarters being upset that someone who's part of running a company doesn't come in and talk to them either every month or every week or every day. And they're like, it, it only takes five minutes. Well, no public statement. If you are part of a game company, just takes five minutes. You're talking about a statement that is going to impact the perception and the livelihood of everyone in that company. So if it's a, if it's a company that has a lawyer, you probably need to write it. Then you need to have a meeting about whether or not it's an appropriate statement. Then you have to send it to the lawyer to see if you're opening yourself up to any legalities. Uh, then it comes back from the lawyer. And if you don't like it, you have to tweak it again. A, a, a 50 word statement about why a Kickstarter is late could involve three meetings and several hours. And to not give it that much time is to put the livelihood of everyone who works for you at risk for you being in a bad mood. So <laughs> nothing nothing takes five minutes and silence as annoyed as everyone gets is sometimes the only thing people have time for when, when there's crunch period at a, a role-playing game, tabletop game publication, and people are already doing 50, 60 hours a week of work. Uh, and frequently they are also freelancing in order to make enough money to live in the very expensive places that a lot of these game companies are, are gathered uh yep. when someone says i want you to do something for your fans that will only take 10 minutes that person a does not understand that, that 10 minutes is actually 20 minutes and b doesn't understand they're saying i want you to get 20 minutes less sleep you're only getting six hours but i want you to get five hours and 40 minutes so you can do this thing and other times things are relatively slow and we've got all the time in the world but i mean gen con is a, a huge massive event uh i'm a huge fan of it but any company that goes to Gen Con has to do a lot of work. And that work is, is extra work on top of the publishing schedule. Yep. And it can't be a light publishing schedule. It has to be the heaviest publishing schedule because you need the bump of launching your biggest, sexiest, most important product at Gen Con. So I have never seen a game company not end up having somewhere between some and a stupid amount of overtime work. And mostly people are on a salary, so they're getting paid the same amount of money for more work in order to get ready for Gen Con. Yep. 
Yeah, Matthew and I have a have a slice of that experience because we used to we used to run uh, LARPs. Yep. And uh-huh. we would run LARPs at Dragon Con, which is our local big con. Sure. Uh, and that was work. That was like, that, that was hard work. work. That was a lot of work. Uh, and then uh, that one year where everything went the hell and back, where I was doing staff work for Dragon Con, I'm working 30 hours over the con. I'm supposed to be helping them with their with their with their game. I can't. I literally physically can't do it for them, yep. even though I help prep work just because everything. Meanwhile, you know the players they're just having fun at their con and they get to show up for two three hours to have have fun. Yeah, but it's it's, it's work. So yeah, we we, we understand we had, a slice of what you're talking about there. This and, and I that's why I fully wanted. This is why I wanted you on. This is why I wanted you to talk about this because I know that these things are prevalent. I've had friends in the gaming industry that have been writers and developers, and they've told me a, a small measure of what you've been telling me that's been going on for long work. And I, I know there, and these are very common amongst the working class period. A lot of these issues of overwork, underpay, all of that stuff is rampant across the board. Um, so I've been very interested in like what you've had to say about, because this is a, 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 a industry that is getting more every day, getting more exposure. Um, due yes. to the development of fifth edition and the explosion of role-playing games, I think we're going, we're about to hit or are just on the crest of a role-playing renaissance because it's become so popular and ubiquitous. Everyone I know, I can go down the street and I probably tell them, Hey, do you role play? And they'll probably start, Oh, I play D and they'll, they'll start talking to me. And that is just fascinating to me, but it's just, that means this industry is going to start, seeing a lot of spotlight put on it and you're exposing some of that, which is good. And just where the industry can be better, where it should be better. Um, and I guess there's a lot of reckoning in that. Well, there's uh, the bigger the ship, the more time it takes to change course. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, some of that is, is momentum and the fact that you, you, You've got a 40 hour a week job and anytime there's an emergency, that emergency has to take yet more time. But also some of it is that if you're talking about a company that has any number of employees, right? Whether you're talking about uh, five, six, seven contractors that you're contracting every month, okay, you'll do this many hours, you'll get this many hundreds of thousands of dollars or actually in-house staff. Those people's livelihoods are based on you making the right decisions. So uh, if someone says, hey, you all should have, as an example, uh, we would like to see you have more black and, and minority and bi and women of people of color uh, developers. That makes perfect sense. I believe that that diversity is important. Mm-hmm. Now you look at the company and you say, okay, right now, no one's left this month. We can't afford to hire a new person. Do I fire someone to do that? Yes, this is a problem. And it's a problem that we've gotten here where you're sitting around and you might have, you know, eight people at the table and, and six of them look like me, right? Yeah. I, I am the whitest white dude imaginable. I, I am, I am a, a, a heterosis white bearded guy. I'm the least who's been gaming for 30 odd, 40 odd years. And, and there are, but I mean, my wife has been gaming just as long and, yeah. and she's a bigger geek than I am. And she's only in the game industry because she could be in the game industry uh, to assist me, right? People who have gone out of their way to, to over 
23 years to say, hey, I, I saw this one thing of yours. That's cool. Or just people that I met at local conventions. Hey, that's a great game. You should try and get published. My wife ran games at local conventions 20 or more, more like 25 years ago that were so popular that people would show up and look around and see if they could find her so they could play in her game. Mm-hmm. But no one ever suggested that she should try and get published. Mm-hmm. That idea wasn't there. So as a result, I had advantages that as soon as someone saw me do anything interesting in gaming, there were dozens of people coming out of the woodwork saying, you should try and get published. So people like me have that advantage that's gotten us mired into these cogs. And as a result, changing that is going to take time and it's mm-hmm. going to take work. And I have, I've come to the place where I feel it is not good enough to say, for example, hey, we aren't racist. I think you have to say we are anti-racist, right? Yeah. Um, because you can say, I'm not racist. And what you generally mean is I am not consciously doing anything that treats minorities and marginalized people unfairly. On the other hand, if you are supporting the status quo and the status quo treats marginalized people unfairly, then you are part of that problem, whether you meant to be or not. Correct. So the question becomes, what am I doing that is anti-racist, that is anti-bigoted, where I'm saying, what steps am I taking to make a situation that is currently a problem better? Um, And I, I, I by far don't have all the answers. I'm not sure I have any of the answers, but I did... I, I do want to express what some of the problems are in a way publicly so that people can look at them and say, I see this as a potential solution. One of the things I mentioned is that uh, you get a lot of career advancement and advice and opportunities and networking by hanging out in bars after major conventions. Yep. Uh, that's not an option for everyone. First of all, people who are economically disadvantaged just can't get to conventions. Correct. Um, People who have uh, health issues may not be able to stay awake or may not have the accessibility to get into the bar. Right. People who don't feel safe quite reasonably may not want, may not have, you know, a, a pack of three or four people that they trust to keep an eye on them. So they can't, their, their own safety tells them they shouldn't be in a bar where people's inhibitions are getting lower and lower and lower late at night. But that is a place where a lot of career advancement can occur. Um, right after I left Wizards of the Coast, for years, at the end of the, like Gen Con, someone would say, hey, why don't you come to the bar with us? And I'd be like, I don't drink, I'm not interested. Wasn't about drinking. I mean, it was for some of them, but it was an opportunity to hang out and be with people. Yep. Uh, and so one day, people said, hey, why don't you come to dinner instead of to a bar? And I was like, great, I'll go to dinner. And then from dinner, we evolved to a bar, and I thought, well, I'll just go with them and have a Coke. Uh, and the networking just blew my mind. And I'm like, okay, for eight years, I have been avoiding this scene and I have put my career back. And without getting into details, like whole aspects of my career can be traced back to contacts I made. You know, before I ever worked uh, at Paizo, I got to sit next to Jason Bullman uh, at a, a big dinner after a neon con in Las Vegas and that is the most time to chat with Jason I had ever had up to that point. Yep. Jason isn't doing anything vile or wrong by not constantly going out and randomly having dinner with people. But the fact that I was there, I had that economic advantage. I felt physically safe. I was emotionally safe. I've got mental issues, but I was at that time in a good place. Uh, gave me this opportunity to learn about Jason. And that meant that the next time I was pitching things for, at the time, the magazines he was running, I could say, well, I heard Jason say he likes these ideas and these ideas. This gives me an in. And Jason could go, Owen, 
that's that dude who passed me the salt. And that's just, that's a, a more of a connection than just a name. So a number of people have come out of, since I mentioned a lot of this work gets done at conventions and at bars and, and, and said, you know, this is not a possibility. Couldn't we, with all of the virtual connections going on, couldn't we, you know, get together on, on Zoom or have discords or, or do live shows where people who have questions and people that potentially have answers get together? Um, since this John Brown was virtual anyway, uh, I and my friend Stan spent two nights uh, on Facebook, just streaming, saying, hey, we're doing the virtual hanging out at a bar thing. If you want to come ask us any questions, <laughs> hang out, get to know us. We're here streaming from our homes. We've, we've got our beverages of choice. Uh, and if you have access to the internet and the camera, and even that's not universal, but that is a way to get that, that experience or something like that experience out to people. Yeah, from your position, um, what, where do you see the effect of uh, self-publishing through like crowdsourcing, like Kickstarter and whatnot. Did you think that that is having a positive impact on getting people the exposure and the experience through non-traditional means um, and, and getting that avenue into the, into the industry? Um, so I'm not an expert on it. I think very, very clearly uh, it is a potential route and a series of opportunities. Um, at the same time, there used to be, a half dozen major gaming magazines so you could get articles published mm -hmm. to get your name out there. So those gaming magazines, largely gone. Websites, sort of replace it, especially if you have your own. Kickstarter uh, is an opportunity to bring that money in, but there are a number of things that that, that can cause problems for you as well. Uh, I we, we can have a whole nother show on crowdsourcing. In general, I think crowdsourcing is a, a good thing. Um, but uh, I don't know if it's long-term sustainable. And I know that it is daunting as a new career. I mean, my first Kickstarter was daunting and I'd been in the industry for a decade by the time, 15 years by the time I launched it, right? So I still think that while that is great, and I think the people who make that leap and do well are absolutely bootstrapping themselves and I'm incredibly impressed by them. I still strongly suspect that full swath of brilliant, fun, talented, creative people who aren't getting the support and encouragement they need to make it to that. We're not giving them that set of boots so they can bootstrap themselves, right? They're right. the same people bootstrap themselves and they've just got sandals and they don't know how to switch footwear. And that analogy is now as tortured as it could possibly be. <laughs> like, That's perfectly I, fair. It's gone to black. Yeah. There are still places where people don't feel safe and welcome. And those are places that, as an 11-year-old, I, I, my mother felt comfortable leaving me in a room full of, of uh, college-age gamers at a convention uh, until 3 o'clock in the morning so I could ask questions and play different games and see how things worked. Um, there are people who legitimately aren't going to feel safe in that environment, even if and that means that there are opportunities and, and, and life experiences that they can't pick up. Whereas they're picking up life experiences that we don't have that they could bring to gaming if we can find a way to make that connection. Yeah, totally. I totally get that. Um, I think, yeah, you're right. Crowdsourcing is very good. It's a good avenue, but there's a lot of other pitfalls involved in that because you're kind of taking the burden of writer, writer, editor, publisher, all of, all of that on your shoulders. And yeah. if you're really new to any of that, it's going to, 
be nearly soul crushing trying to fulfill if you get success, if you're successful. Well, and I, I prefer to use if when I remember to say funded rather than successful, my very yeah. first Kickstarter was like 2009 or so. It was way before the big wave of Kickstarters and it did not fund. I consider it successful because it told me and the other people doing it, there is not demand for this game that we are reaching. Either the demand does not exist or we need to find a different way to reach it. So we did not spend a year and a half of our life creating a game that we then would not have been able to sell. So it was in that regard a success. It told us we had not connected to the audience we needed to be able to make a profit on this game. It didn't fund, uh, which is how we knew that successful, important piece of information. But I mean, the other thing about Kickstarters, and, and I don't want to go too much on a, on a crowdfunding rant, is that it is very difficult from the outside to know how profitable one is. I have sat with people and gone over their spreadsheets, and I have seen crowdfunding campaigns that made over $100,000 that lost money, yep. where the company in question did not turn a profit. I personally have run crowdfunding campaigns that made five, $6,000, where there were two people involved, and each of them walked away with more than a grand in their pocket. So it's tons less money, but fewer people involved, and those people actually made 50, 60, 70 bucks an hour. So if you looked at those from the outside, you'd say, well, that $100,000 campaign clearly did better than that $6,000 campaign, but that's not true for the people involved. Mm. Depends on how it's divided and all that fun stuff. Amongst other things, yeah. Yeah. Um, cultivated some of your tweets. I'm going to put absolutely. a link. In, I'm going to absolutely put the link in the show notes. Ian World did a great job of like consolidating a lot of your tweets together to sort of explain a lot more and talk about a lot more than we can ever get here because we'd be here for like four hours going through every single one. So no real particular order, but they're all relevant to some of the stuff that I wanted to hit on. Was one was called great, uh, and I'm going to quote you here. Uh, imposter syndrome is hugely common in the, in the TTRPG industry for two reasons. Two, uh, there's a sense that if you are a real person, you could afford a house and insurance and retirement account, but that's not true for 99% of the TTRPG professionals. I mean, I, I literally had someone in the game industry with a completely straight face say, I don't think I'm qualified to be on a panel about imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Which I think is the absolute perfect example oh, yeah. uh, of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, it, it, there, it is an act of ego to think that the stuff I make up is worth people paying me. And yet mm-hmm. uh, that has been the way I have, have paid the mortgage and the rent and put food on the table uh, and, and bought my health insurance for 23, 24 years now. Um, but that act of ego uh, comes at a price because everything that you put out there there are going to be people uh, who want to tear it apart. And as a creator, I know how many people help me make this look good. And there are still people that are talking about how bad it is. So clearly what I have done is terrible. Um, <laughs> you also have uh, a lot of people get into, not everyone, but a lot of people get into role-playing because we like our imaginary worlds better than the real world. And if you don't like the real world, one of the reasons you probably don't like it is you're not super impressed with your space in it. And that also lends itself to imposter syndrome. Yep. Um, I, I have had people, you know, who have been 
making money and putting out books and even working full-time in game industries tell me I'm waiting for people to realize they don't need me. Well, they don't need any one person, but they need people like you all the time. Uh, and a lot of people who are in gaming feel like there is nothing else they could do where they'd even be able to make this amount of money. Um, I used to joke that uh, I was a full-time game designer because while my friends were going to college and getting degrees, I was going to go to college campus and killing orcs rather than getting a degree. So now all I can do is make games while they're sysadmins. Yeah. I don't tell that joke anymore because I am aware, A, that I've got a, a whole slew of skills that I can apply elsewhere if I want to. I, I have done at this point, if I want to describe them in non-game terms, technical editing, team building, uh, process analysis, uh, uh, the advertising writing. I, I, I once got $600 knocked off a car bill by telling the car repair person uh, how he could make his website ads snazzier. And he was so excited <laughs> by the ad copy I wrote him that he knocked 600 bucks off at a $1,000 repair bill. Nice. Um, so clearly, we do all have some very applicable, very important skills. The other reason I don't tell that joke anymore is I have seen some, some manuscripts produced by people who have gained just as long as I have, who are terrible, just <laughs> awful. It's, there really are skills involved in this process, and mm. they're frequently invisible skills, but they exist. Um, and if, if people want professional levels of product, they need to be willing to pay professional uh, paychecks for them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the Holy grail of, of finding a way to put D and D on your resume somehow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, involved in weekly team building and morale exercise. Okay. So I uh, love this because this is, this reminds me of the stuff when I was growing up, like trying to either put it on your resume or tell people, why can't you work this weekend? Mm -hmm. Like got to camp camping. Yeah. Hey, I'm camping. I'm going to go camping. Uh, that's for LARP. That's code for LARPing everyone. Um, that kind of stuff, because do I look like I go camping? No. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just the idea of like, these are skills you're developing. And especially if you, you've got to treat it like you are like you are treating yourself with and learning new things. Like I didn't always have a podcast. I didn't come out of the womb knowing how to put a podcast together and how to audio edit. Through many hours of work, I have produced content and learned how to do it. So, yeah. exactly. So, it's just the idea you will develop skills and all that stuff. Uh, there's another one that I really like that um, I'm going to quote you here. Much less professional material from big and well-known TTRPG companies is placed than you thought. And playtesting takes more time and effort than you thought. Much more material from tiny third, uh, third. Uh, you said three PP, but I'm third, third party, party publishers. publishers yeah. And indie TTRPG companies is playtested than you thought. And I like that statement a lot because I've had discussions recently with, I think, Scott and a few others. It's just like, man, I would love if there was QAQC more for, for tabletop role-playing games because they're just becoming more sophisticated as more people get in there. They want the stuff to move and glide at the table. Um, they want it to kind of handle like a computer game can handle certain things, and the human brain doesn't function like that. But I just would love to see more of that, and that's why I like that that, that you brought it out there, so that a lot of things aren't 
uh, tested as much tested as you think they should be tested. And I mean, I am without, without throwing any given company under the bus. Yep. Um, I, there's no company I'm aware of that does not put out, for example, adventures that to the best of anyone's knowledge, no one has ever played all the way through. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no quality control, right? Part, part of the point of having developers or to having people who are expert at reading through something and saying, this will work, this will work, this doesn't make sense, that doesn't work. Um, when I was hired at Paizo, I was originally hired to develop modules for them. And one of the modules I got, literally from a, from a freelance writer, literally has a point where there is a very difficult to find secret door and two thirds of the adventure are behind the secret door and there is no hint anywhere that there is a secret door. So if no one takes the time or happens to have the ability to just make a roll and they walk by that secret door, the adventure stops. Mm. There is absolutely nothing sending you beyond there. Mm. Um, and I had gained enough that I was able to say, well, that's, that's terrible. We want to get to all of the content. Um, and the secret door isn't important. It's, it's not crucial that, that, <laughs> that people have to find it. There was logical that it was a secret door, but there had been a fight. Uh, and so I just changed it so that the secret door is something that someone who was badly wounded from the, the fight and then dies on the other side staggered through while bleeding. The adventure doesn't have anyone having gotten in there since then. So I didn't have to change the map. I just know there's a blood trail that walks up to the wall and then stops. Right. Um, and then I, just in case that wasn't enough, because you never know how a GM's going to explain things, uh, I threw in, in a couple of other places notes about beyond the secret door and someone's journal. Uh, and there was a chance if you were walking on the beach outside, you'd be like, hey, the area is this big, but we've only been here. So obviously, some, you just throw in a few extra notes. But playtesting, good playtesting, takes time. It takes at mm. least as long as writing the material. Um, Grimmer Space, which is a, a Starfinder uh, horror setting that uh, Sean Aston and some other people are putting together that I have helped work with, is doing a class playtest right now. And that's just the classes, right? We're not even playtesting the spells and the feats and the mm -hmm. monsters, just the classes. And that is taking as long as writing those classes took on an individual basis, because since these aren't computer driven, anyone can think to try to do anything. And the more content there is for a game, the more possible combinations there are. Yep. So you as a designer or a developer, or even most players can look at it and say, oh, I see these things. I see how they're supposed to work. But as soon as you put it in front of 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people, someone's going to go, oh, well, there's this option here and this option here and this option way over here. Or you'll end up with, if you're doing an adventure, what do you do if you have underestimated how tough players will be by the time they get somewhere and they just get slaughtered. Yep. Um, and that, that testing takes time and time is money already. Yep. People aren't getting paid uh, what I strongly believe they are worth to put these games out, except in a very few situations. Yep. And people complain about, I, I want to see more quality control, but normally when you say to them, how many more dollars per book are you willing to spend on that quality control? Yep. Uh, they feel like the books are already overpriced which is not true. Books are not overpriced, not even a little bit. Yeah. They're, they can be more than you can afford. And I'm sorry, I get it. There's tons of stuff I can't afford. Yeah. But for the effort mm -hmm. and work that goes into them and the value they give you, they are not overpriced. Yeah, I, I think that's why we're seeing a little bit more of a boom of sort of smaller, more tightly condensed 
games out there that are like 10 bucks, 20 bucks on PDF. But also you're seeing those because as new people come into the industry, they just don't have the resources to put together a 450 page book. Oh yeah. The art I mean, budget it, alone. Yeah. And, and there are ways that you can, you can try and mitigate that. Right. But part, part of the point of something like fantasy age is that the fantasy age or rule book, which I think I've got right here. This is uh, 144 pages. It's a professional product from Green Ronin. Uh, this is shooting for a different market than the 500-page Pathfinder Second Edition. My copy is not right on top of me. Oh yeah, I remember. Re I remember seeing the Pathfinder book, and I was like, "What is that? I'm going to kill someone with it." <laughs> um, and I remember, I mean, literally many years ago when they did, I think, sixth edition of the Hero System. They had a copy of the hero system they'd shot bullets at to see how big a bullet it took to get through the core rule book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yikes. On the yeah. other hand, you got tiny D six, which is a, a tiny little game with a D six and it's fun to play. Yeah. So I, I used to think that there was a perfect amount of size and a perfect amount of crunch and fluff. And now I've determined that there is a perfect size and crunch for me and yep. the different people just want different things out of roleplay. Yeah, and then you got games like Morkborg, which has been running awards and is truly just the strangest, awesomest thing that existed. And it's like, I think it's like 100 pages at most. Like, yeah. it's extremely small, and it's got some killer, not like fancy art. It's just got very evocative art, like very precisely yeah. tailored to what it's trying to hit, and it does that. There's a, we could talk for hours, so I want to want to hit one more, and then we'll kind of close it out. Okay. This this goes back to a little bit more of the stuff we talked at the very beginning. They were kind of mm -hmm. hitting up the idea of the diversity and getting more voices into the RPG industry. And it says, asking RPG freelancers to publicly call out a publisher is asking them to reduce their tiny chance of making enough money in RPGs to survive. Uh, sometimes it's a moral imperative, but it's always painful and dangerous. It is more dangerous for women and minorities. And I wanted to put that out there because I'm happy that you said that because that is true. I see a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of like, well, how do you, why do you support this company? Why do you continue to write for it? I'm like, and these are just freelancers. These are people that are out there. They're just trying to make their way. And these companies are the ones with the purse strings and there's not much they can do about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, every person has to draw their own line of, of when does it become a moral imperative, right? Mm -hmm. um, I am very, very reluctant to publicly call out a entire company. Um, I am much more likely to call out individual people for bad behavior. And even then I normally do it uh, when someone who's been a victim of specific bad behavior decides that they want to go public. And then my job is to say, I believe them, I support them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a risk. And one of the things that can happen is if, if a company is seven great people uh, and one broken stair that you don't want to be alone with at a convention, you, you may be friends with those seven great people. You don't want to ruin their ability to, to pay their mortgages. They've got, you know, spouses and children and people depending on them and house payments. Um, so it's, it can just, it can be frightening uh, and worrisome and, it's not normally the companies that punish people for these things, although everything is very interconnected and chummy. So if you get a reputation for being a person that if you think a company has treated you badly, you're going to rake them over the coals on Twitter, there are absolutely companies that are less likely to hire you at that point. And I'm not mm -hmm. even sure I can blame them, right? Because that's a, that's a risk-benefit analysis. 
but even without that you you can just be looking at i i don't i don't necessarily know all the facts maybe i'm wrong that imposter syndrome can come into it um and it's scary uh i've got a post for my blog that i have not yet finished i've been ironing on it for weeks now so the the title of it is don't hire me <laughs> and it's a post about why i might not be the best choice for your company even if you think i am because there are so many people with so many experiences that are different from everyone else in the company and my experiences are more similar to theirs who yeah. might be a better choice and one of the points i make in that uh is i can take the risk of putting out a blog post entitled don't hire me and people are still going to hire me. Right. Um, I'm not taking as big a risk. Normally, what happens if, if there is a problem is that fans pile on. Um, a, a lot of people in this industry are very protective about their favorite game, their favorite, their favorite system. And those are inanimate objects that they will defend with sometimes violent uh, threats of violence and horrific language, or they, there are certain... Uh, groups and, and individual creators that they want to defend. So if you go after someone, you will frequently find your ability to interact normally on the internet uh, is curtailed or shut down. And you are exposed to sometimes truly vile content. And the more marginalized someone is, the more vulnerable they are to that. And the more likely people seem to be to go after them. Yeah, I, I, I have occasionally had people come after me, but just not with the frequency that I see a lot of other creators who don't happen to be uh, hetero cis white guys. Mm. They just, they, they, not all of them, but some of them are very much targeted by, by groups of people. Yeah. So it's, it's scary and dangerous and everyone has to make their own call. And I, I don't want to call someone out for refusing to boycott a company because there's one person at that company that, is perhaps a bad actor. Um, if this is your industry, you know, people don't normally tell plumbers, oh, you can't do the plumbing there. And if you can't make your living doing the plumbing there, you should stop being a plumber because you shouldn't support like any government. People don't do that. But people <laughs> will tell RPG creators, you should refuse to write anything for that company. And if you can't make a living without writing for that company, you should stop being an RPG writer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really tough. It's a super tough, hard. And that's what goes back to you talking about the networking that you did, because I have been told you need to go hang out at bars. You need to go talk to these people at conventions. This is where all of the threads that you need to get into the industry. Cause it's basically, it's who, you know, it's part of it. It's like, I, the advice I got a while back was you don't have to write the best stuff in the world. Just write consistently. It could be mediocre. Just write consistently. If you can write consistently and you have the right connections, you're fine. Just keep going. And, and it, that's hard when you've got somebody who's basically a whistleblower who's going, this person did this bad thing. People need to be aware of this. And then that person has the influence and power to go, no. And problem is he's got a network of people that he's known for years and he can go, don't hire that person. This, is, this isn't going to work. No matter the validity or whatever the situation may be, that is just the hard on the ground facts of what's going to be happening because then it becomes a personality conflict. And it's, it's another place where I feel like, again, at-risk and marginalized people suffer more. Mm -hmm. um, they take bigger risks if they do come out, and I do my best to support them. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for anyone who wants to, to come after me for, for uh, not being vocal enough about talking about broken stairs or calling out bad actors or 
refusing to work with companies, and there are some companies I won't work with. Um, but uh, I think they need to be empathetic when looking at people who are less well-established. Um, I, I hate, uh, uh, for example, people going after someone who's already got a bunch of disadvantages in the industry and saying, well, if you had that bad experience, you should have done all of these things to bring those people out. Well, that's, that's asking them to take yet another risk. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's why I, I've sort of, I wouldn't say, uh, that's why I'm happy that you're doing this on some level because you can take the kind of risk. You can try to support these people and go, well, I have the clout. I have the, I have the means and the privilege to do it. I need to be the good actor in this in order to support them in order to get things changed, to make things change in the industry. But uh, I'm going to wrap it up here because Owen has been a great pleasure. I would love to have you back on whenever new things are afoot with you and your companies. Absolutely. I'd love to be on. Uh, I'm interested to look at all the fantasy age and uh, I want to look into Starfinder a little bit because I do like, I do like new things and I haven't looked at some sci-fi in a while. I think I definitely need to dose myself with some of that. Um, so thank you very much for being on. Um, please shout out all your your details, all your uh, all your uh, your ats and all the contactables. Absolutely. Well, uh, I've got my own website, which is owenkcstevens.com. Uh, I normally do five articles a week on there. Uh, that is supported by my Patreon, uh, and the the website uh, is not you know password protected or behind a paywall or anything. Uh, but the more people join my Patreon, the more time I can dedicate to it. Uh, mm -hmm. So the Patreon is patreon.com forward slash ONKC Stevens. Uh, I am on Twitter, which is where all these tweets that we we're talking about with the uh, hashtag real game industry came from. Uh, that's twitter.com forward slash Owen underscore Stevens. And I am also on uh, Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com forward slash ONK.C.Stevens. Hmm. Yep. And I will absolutely have a link to all that in the show notes. So if you just want to click on it, go right to all his content, you'll be able to, because I know I'm going to be going there and making sure I've got all things. There's a lot of backlog of probably articles I need to read uh, because I've, I've found you very insightful. So again, thank you very much, Owen, for coming on. It was a delight. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> That'll be my official transition music now. Mm -hmm. um scott he was extremely informed oh yeah no he's a he's got a real good head on his shoulders that was a really cool conversation yeah uh, i really enjoyed it um i think he's got a lot more i probably will he has reached out and said if he wants to be back on i'd be sure. happy to have him yeah absolutely i can definitely pick his brain for hours i think ryan would really enjoy talking to him that's that's why i wanted him here for the interview because i think i think i think he would have some very poignant questions to ask him and i think he would have the answers that ryan would want from him uh because this is a this has always been an industry but it's been an extremely tight small industry and it's becoming much much bigger and there's more exposure and that means the cracks are showing and it's time to shore it up and fix the infrastructure so that it can be better than it ever has been in my opinion indeed um, i mean i i think one of the things that got sort of bandied about was just the fact that, you know, everything's virtual now. So mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to take the things that we learn here and sort of the realities that we have to deal with here to bring those forward so that people with accessibility issues can yeah. 
take advantage of some of the more old boy network that yeah. you get by, you know, hanging around at a bar. Yeah, that's that was, that, was, that was the biggest thing that I have always been told when I say this in an interview is just it's it's who you know. It really becomes a who you know thing. And I'm wondering how the industry adapts. I hope hopefully it adapts well uh, to the more virtual long distance. And obviously freelancing with the internet makes freelancing easier. The one downside is more people have access to it. Therefore, more people are submitting, more people are developing, which is, can be a great thing for new companies and new things, but it also can flood the market. So we'll see how it all turns out. Indeed. Yeah. But we will probably have them back in the future if I can help it. So I hope everyone had a really good time with that. And so from everyone here at Polyhedron, go where your fun is. Go roll some dice. Hello, everyone. Matthew here. If you enjoyed the show, you can always contact us at polyhedronpodcast at gmail.com, as well as at polyhedroncast on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Divis Melkab on Twitter. And I'm at Arduous, R-J-U-O-U-S on Twitter. And if you really want to show your support and get some extra content on the side, head on over to patreon.com slash polyhedron.